Welcome again, everybody. Um, one thing to add to what uh, Michelle said, supposedly parking could be an issue down there. There's a lot of stuff happening um, in, on Main Street. Um, there is a big parking lot for South Branch, but there's um, just a bunch of things that are happening in, on Main Street today. So um, we're still doing it. Please try to find somewhere to park, okay? Um, I don't know how to create parking, so um, I'm not giving you a solution. I'm just telling you there might be a problem, okay? That's all I'm doing. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, let me text. If you have my number or if you have anyone's number and you're trying to come but parking is an issue, text me and I'll pick you up somewhere. You can park in my house and we can, I don't know, we'll figure something out. But anyways, I uh, just wanted to let you know, um, that not that that announcement was helpful at all, just letting you know that could happen. All right, um, we are uh, in our second week of our Grilled series, and if you've not been here, uh, this series is a series where all we are doing is answering the questions that you all submitted. That's the entire series. It's different from all the other series we do. Um, this is the second time doing that. So uh, we just take the questions that you all submitted. We gave you a month to submit those questions, and you submitted a ton of questions. Um, I promise you I cannot get to all of them. I was planning on doing eight. And when I finished writing these answers to these five, I was like, that's too much. I don't want you guys to sit here for 45 minutes to, uh, for a sermon. So if I do not get to your answer and you want to know it, then shoot me an email, text me, whatever. You, just contact us at info and I will get that and I will answer it for you, okay? So I'm not going to get to all the questions because you guys submitted so many, which is great. Um, but if I do not get to it and you really want to know the answer, then please submit it to me. Um, so this is our second week. Last week, we only answered one question, so I probably could have answered some more questions if I did more than that. But last week, we answered the question, why we ordain women here. If you had, did not hear that, I invite you to go back and listen to that. We answered that question last week. Today, we're answering questions that are all kind of the same theme, because we got a lot of these type of questions. Questions that were regarding how the world began, and questions regarding how the world's going to end. We got a lot of those type of questions, so we put all that in one sermon. Now, before I start answering any of these questions, there's one thing I want everyone to keep in mind as we talk about this. Each topic and each question that we answer today, uh, whether it's the beginning or the end, we need to look at everything, not just those questions, but everything that we do in life and everything that we look at in Scripture. We need to look at everything through the lens and filter of Jesus. Everything that we do, it's always through that filter. We are living where a time where Jesus has resurrected, we and we are living in the newness that he brings. So we do not look at Genesis and make a decision on what we decide for that and then put Jesus with it. Everything starts with Jesus, and then we look at everything else past it, okay? So the most important thing you need to know is that that is our foundation. That is what is most important that we all understand is Jesus, who he is, what he did, and who we are in him. And here's the analogy I always use. Um, our faith should be like a house, and a house has its foundation, and then we build the walls, and then we might paint the house different color, we might change the way it looks, we might change the windows out, we might do all this other stuff, but the foundation doesn't change. Our faith, our foundation is Jesus. Everything else might change over time as you learn more, as you have more discoveries, it might adapt and change, things might change, but our foundation never changes. The house that is built is on Jesus and Jesus alone. All that to say, if I answer a question you don't agree with me, that's fine. We don't have to fully agree on anything we talk about today besides the fact that Jesus is our Savior. That is our foundation, okay? And the reason why I say that is because I, most of these are like science-based questions, and I'm not a science guy. 
I sucked at science in high school. I took one class of science in college because I had to. It was environmental science. And the only reason I took that class is because I heard it was the easiest class to take. I took it. I only went to half the classes and I got a C. And I was like, that's fine with me. That's all I need. Um, sorry, mom, who's watching this. So I, I only went to half the classes because I didn't want to. That's the only science I took. So I am not a good, a big science guy. So you may know, I said this at family service, you may know the answers to these better than I do. This might be the only time that you are smarter than me. I'm just kidding. There's plenty of times. But this might be a time where you know something more than I do, and that's okay. You can send me an email, text about it again. But again, our foundation is Jesus. That is the number one important thing. But knowing that and knowing all the questions you asked, I did take these questions seriously. I didn't just say, well, I don't know science, so whatever. I took these questions seriously. I'm going to try to give you the answer that I have found through what I've studied. I'm going to give you the answer that, that um, I think the Bible says. And again, we can debate it, uh, but our foundation is Jesus. Everyone good with that? Okay. All right. Here we go. Number one, how should we view evolution in correlation with the creation story we see in Genesis? We got a couple of questions regarding the creation story and evolution. We got a couple of those questions. So um, for me, there are two um, that are the most dominant and popular biblical views um, that I believe Scripture supports when it comes to creation. Here's the two. The first one is um, young earth, as in we see Genesis, we see God built the earth and it built everything in six days, and we believe it was six literal days, and we can look at Genesis and see how we can correlate that. The world was built in six 24-hour days, exactly like Genesis tells us it is. Um, there's theories that each day could have represented a thousand years. Um, I don't really see the evidence for that in Scripture and, and the words they were using. I believe Moses, who wrote this, um, most likely is Moses who wrote this, I believe he was writing saying literal days, okay? That's a view that um, I believe is supported in, in Scripture. Here's another view that's very popular that I believe is also supported in Scripture, that all of creation was done in verse 1 and verse 2. Here's verse 1 and verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in this view, if God did everything in the first two verses, the world can be as old as you want it to be. It can be trillions of years old. It doesn't really change anything else. And then the rest of the verses of the days are God sorting and figuring things out. So out of the two of those, which again, I think both of them are supported biblically, I lean towards number two over number one. Um, over the six uh, literal days, young earth. So for me, when you look at evolution, evolution to me isn't that much of an enemy for my belief, if that makes sense. Uh, but here's what I will say when it comes to evolution. I think it's something we need to understand. Um, in the 18th century, Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, uh, he was doing scientific experiments and studying the world and, and uh, studying what's happening and they had a view, it was the first time, maybe not the first time, but it was one of the most predominant views that they had was that they were going to take God or the idea of a God or deity out of the picture as they do their research. So everything they did, they took God out of it and did the research. Most scientists will do that. They want to only talk about what they can prove, so they'll take God out of it. Um, Darwin did this. Erasmus Darwin, Charles Darwin's grandfather, would do this. So when Charles Darwin started with his studies and his experiments, he had that philosophical background, okay? It was a background that he had that was a foundation, that philosophical background. So you add that, and you take what Charles Darwin would do, and he would look at stuff, and he would do experiments, and his idea was, let's get God out of the mix. If God's not in the mix, if there is a God, 
If we get them out of the mix, then what do we see? How do we see things are happening? So with that view, when you take God out of it and you see things change or operate, then you just see it as what it is. That's the foundation I think we need to know that. Then around the same time, Thomas Jefferson, you add the deism of Thomas Jefferson, who had split off God for political reasons, and that's where we see the separation of church and state that you may know a little bit about. Um, And again, the same idea. Without God in the picture, we can create whatever sort of empire we want to. That's where we started, started to see that. And before we started like really thinking about them, the church actually was okay with this. They colluded with this because the church at that time would treat Christianity as an escape from this world, that here's the world and we're trying to get away from it. We're trying, we are separate. We're eventually going to leave this world to go to heaven. We're going to escape it. And both of those views are not biblical. That is not a biblical view. When you read scripture in the Bible, it's constantly God and the world working together. It's the heavens and the earth meshing together. We constantly see that and read that. And the Bible is right in the middle of, of that meshing of the, the heavens and the earth. Jesus is right in the middle of that. So understanding evolution's starting point is important because they are trying to take God out of it so, so they can just do the research. That doesn't mean that we ignore every discovery that is made simply because of that. We don't do that. I mean, let's take the Big Bang, for example. Do you know what they believe was before the Big Bang? It's this thing called the singularity. I don't know if you ever heard of that. The singularity. Here's what the singularity is. It is one point of infinite density and gravity that from that one point the universe was built. Do you know what that kind of sounds like to me? So sometimes when, when research has happened, we will make new discoveries. And to me, new discoveries are all it is is, God, is revealing how God did it. At the same time, I do believe that we need to be careful of what we believe. I believe Adam was a real person. I have trouble believing that Adam came from evolution. I believe that not only because we read it in Genesis, but I believe it because Jesus talked about Adam as a real person. I believe that because Paul in Romans 6 talked about Adam as a real person. So all that to say, be diligent in what you learn and what you discover. Don't be afraid of new discoveries because it might not perfectly mesh with your view of Genesis 1. Don't be afraid of that. But at the end of the day, understand what I think is the most important thing. God created the world. How? I'm not 100% sure, okay? But God created. So that's my answer to the first question. All right, second one. Should we keep the Sabbath? Should we keep the Sabbath? The first we hear about the Sabbath is in the creation story, that we have the six days, and then on the seventh day, God rested. And then number seven in Scripture, if you've ever read the Bible, um, you might have noticed that number a lot, number seven. Um, Number seven in Scripture is a big deal. It represents fullness, and it represents completeness, being complete and full. And a lot of us would like to describe ourselves as complete and full, We all want that, but not all of us experience it. So then we fast forward to the Israelites. The Israelites, um, in the story of Moses, are wandering in the desert. They are going to the promised land, or another way you can say it is the place of final rest, of full rest. They are wandering the desert until they get to that place, to the place that they can finally rest, the place that they were promised. But God says, hey, even though you're not at that place yet, while you're wandering in the wilderness, I want you to live like you're already there. I want you to start living like you're already there. And one of the ways that they did that is they would rest on the Sabbath day, seventh day. They were to pick up manna each day except for the Sabbath day. That was a day of rest. And then this keeps going. Every seven years, 
the Israelites were allowed, would allow the land to rest completely. They would not do anything to the land. And then the seventh year of the seven years, they would have a, the year of Jubilee. And what would happen for this is anyone who was in debt, anyone who had lost their land, it would all be restored. It was the, considered the ultimate rest, the year of Jubilee. If you had a debt, all of a sudden that debt's gone. If you lost your land because you could not pay, that land is given back to you, the, the ultimate rest. When Jesus comes, he proclaims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. That ultimate rest will solely be found in him. That all of the burdens and the pain and the debt that we owe will finally find its ultimate rest in him. Then he's crucified at the end of the week. He stays in the tomb on the Sabbath day. If you notice how that works, even on the Sabbath day, he rested. And then on Sunday, because Saturday was a Sabbath in the Jewish tradition, and then on Sunday he was resurrected, the first day of new creation. So we look forward to that ultimate rest one day, that ultimate place where we can fully rest in him. But just like the Israelites in the wilderness, God is calling us to live like we're already there, to live and to practice that ultimate rest. So should we keep the Sabbath? Absolutely we should. We should have a time that we practice honoring the Sabbath, that we rest, that we rest in him. It's not just a day off of work, which it is, by the way. It is a day off work, but it's not just that. It is finding your rest in him. So how does that look practically? Um, I'm going to give you some ways that you can start doing this if you aren't, and I'm going to give you how I do it um, just to give you some context. Here's how it practically looks. Um, If you want to start keeping the Sabbath or you're not doing a good job with this, Pick a day that works for you, whatever day it is. It doesn't have to be Sunday, even though for a lot of you, it's probably the best day. If you're not working on Sunday, that's a good day. For me, today's not my Sabbath. Today is the day I work the most. Some people think it's the only day I work, okay? So today's not my day of rest. Mine is on Mondays. But find a day that works for you, a day that you're not working, a day that you can relax, okay, that you can rest. Mine is on Mondays. On those days, do something that relaxes you. Maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's uh, working out, maybe it's reading a book. Find something that, that relaxes you. It doesn't mean that you just, if, if watch TV relaxes you, you just watch TV all day. We're going to do things on it, but find something at some point that relaxes you. For me, um, I um, love playing board games, so a lot of times on Mondays, I'll go and hang out with some friends and beat all of them in Catan, which I always do. Um, and or I'll do, I'll read, or I'll watch movies with my kids. I love watching movies with my kids. I'll go to the gym, whatever. Find something that relaxes you. Then find something that stirs your love for God. That is why I think Sunday is a good day for most of you, because if you make this a priority, coming to church, this is an opportunity for, for your heart to be stirred and to be in the, in the presence of God and to be practical and intentional about doing that. Even if you serve, that is a way for your heart to stir closer to him. Just because you're serving on Sunday morning, like a lot of us do, doesn't mean that, that it's not a day of rest. We are still resting in him by being here. So that's why Sunday's a good day. Find something that stirs your heart, but maybe past that, it's, it's being nature, going outside. Maybe it's reading. For me, since um, today's not my Sabbath day, on Mondays, I, at some point, I always try to go outside while my kids are playing on our playground, and I try to read. Now, one thing that I learned pretty quick is um, I would try to get a certain amount done while I was reading, and so my kids who were playing would want to play with me, and I'd be like, no, I'm resting. I need to read this book, which is silly. So here's what I started doing. I started going outside. I would play with them. I'd sit. I would read, and I have no intentions of how much, if I read a paragraph, I read a paragraph, but if I'm just kind of hanging out with my kids or I get up and like, 
heaven forbid my kids want to play with me, I go play with them, or I'm just like kind of in nature. That's a way of me to, to rest in God. So find things for you that work. And then the last one, and I'm being serious about this, and some of you are fine with this, some of you never do this, but you absolutely have to. Take a vacation. Take two vacations. Take three vacations. However many, take some vacations. Spend some time with your family somewhere else. I know it's hard. I know it can get expensive, but you need to find time to take a break with your family. For staff here, um, we have three of their staff, Lauren, Frank, and Michelle. Um, Last church I was at, even when I wasn't paid staff, um, there were still rules on how many weeks I could have off. There was three weeks I could have off. We don't have that rule here. Take as many weeks as you need off. Our only rule is please take some weeks off. Please go on vacation. Please go away because vacation is so important. Take some time to rest. So you need to keep the Sabbath. And here's why you you absolutely need to do that. And some of us, we have trouble because we work so hard. We're always doing stuff. You cannot last by working every day and never resting. You will not last. Your your marriage most likely won't last. Your family won't think you're, you're for them. You will not last if you keep going every day. Some of you know this already. You've, you've tried it because of a season of life. You have to, the best thing for your family and for your relationship with God and for your spouse or what your friends is to have a day where you can truly rest. Should we keep the Sabbath? Absolutely. Okay, next one. That took a lot longer. Oh no, I gotta start moving. Um, what evidence is there of a global flood? Okay. Um, I personally do not have any trouble believing uh, in the flood that we read about in Genesis. Um, the story of, of, of Noah's Ark. I have no trouble believing that. Um, the way I read it, 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 may, it seems like whoever's writing it, Moses most likely, is talking about it in a historical event, and Jesus talked about it like it was a historical event, so I believe it was. I have no trouble believing in a flood. Um, I believe there is archaeological evidence of a flood occurring in history, plus most religions and cultures have a flood story in their mythos, um, some people would say, yeah, it's, that's because it's made up, or I would say, or maybe because there was one, and they all kind of told stories about it. So there is, I, do, I have no trouble believing in a flood. Uh, but this question doesn't just, doesn't just ask about a flood. What evidence is there for a global flood? I think that's an important word, for a global flood. Um, when I read Genesis, when I read it talk about the flood, and I see the word uh, world, as in it was a worldwide flood, to me, the word um, world is a little ambiguous. Um, it, it's a little bit up for interpretation. It could absolutely mean a global, entire earth covering flood. It could absolutely mean that. Or it could also mean to me um, the inhabited world that was the focus of the judgment. Because again, uh, the flood came because of the judgment, right? It could very much mean the inhabited world. In fact, uh, Peter says it this way in Second Peter 3, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. It's kind of alluding to the fact that it could have been just the world where people inhabited, okay? So a localized flood could have still accomplished the judgment that was being done to the people if they were all still there. So personally, um, I'm cool either way. If archaeologists find discoveries and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure there was a worldwide flood, then cool, I'm with it, I'm all good with that. If archaeologists say, no, I don't think there's a worldwide flood, but there does seem to be a localized flood, cool, I'm with that too. To me, it doesn't change the text, it doesn't change the meaning to the text, it doesn't um, change the purpose of why it was written, it changes nothing for me. So, do I believe in a flood? Yes. Global or local? I don't know. Either one, you pick. I don't know. I think there's biblical evidence for both of them, so I'm not sure. So, that's my answer to that one. All right, next one. What, next one, if you can, there you go. Uh, what do you believe about dinosaurs in relation to the timeline of Scripture? Where do they fit in God's story? This was 
our number one asked question by far. Out of all the questions you all could have asked, all of you want to know about is dinosaurs? That's it. We literally got like 12 questions, all some kind about dinosaurs. Like, what do you, did the comments go dinosaurs? The flood go dinosaurs? What are dinosaurs in the Bible? And we got so many questions about dinosaurs. You can ask me anything. And you want to know my view on dinosaurs? You guys just watched Jurassic Park recently or something? So, listen, here's what I'll tell you. Here's my view on dinosaurs, and I'll, I'll do this one kind of quick. Um, I believe this depends on your view on the earth. We kind of talked about it in the first question, okay? If, if you believe that the earth is millions and millions and millions and millions of years old, if you believe that, um, then uh, it would make sense for the dinosaurs to have completely died off before Adam ever got here. So anything else regarding dinosaurs, yeah, they, I'm sure they died off way before they got there. So if you believe the earth is really old, then it would make sense to me that that could have happened. Um, if you believe that the earth is a lot younger, or if you believe in young earth, it would make sense that people walked around with dinosaurs. The only thing we can logically make sense to. And if you look at scripture, um, there are different verses and words that describe things that could be defined as a dinosaur. There's no like, here's a dinosaur, but here's some words. There's a, there's a word in Hebrew called tanin, which can be translated to sea monster or serpent or dragon. So that could very easily be um, talking about a dinosaur. Um, and that word is mentioned 30 times in the Old Testament. So whatever they're describing, which could have been a dinosaur, then there, there it is. It could be there. There's also an example in Job. In Job chapter 40, it says, look at behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. That could have been a dinosaur. Um, could have also been a hippo, but it could have been a dinosaur too, okay? So there's a lot of things it could have been. And when you look at the words, there, there are things that talk about like a tail. We talked about that in the back um, earlier. There are things that could describe dinosaurs. So to me, there isn't a clear like, verse that says, I'm a dinosaur, hear me roar, okay? There's no verse I can fully tell you that's like, yeah, this is definitely a dinosaur. There's things that kind of allude to it that could possibly be dinosaurs. Um, and if there were dinosaurs when people were there, then it would make sense that the dinosaurs would likely die off sometime after the flood due to combination of dramatic uh, environmental shifts. Uh, scholars also believe that people would hunt dinosaurs, so combination of those things would most likely get rid of the dinosaurs. So that is my dinosaur quest answer for you. I know it's probably not enough for all the demand we had on dinosaurs, but that's what I got for you. Depends on what, how you view the earth. That's why I believe about dinosaurs. All right, last question we're going to talk about today. Pre-tribulation or post-tribulation rapture? So some of you know exactly what this question means. Some of you have no clue what a single word in that one besides verse means, okay? So let me explain to you the difference between pre-tribulation and post-tribulation rapture. First, let's talk about rapture. Rapture is the belief that one day Jesus will come back and all those who are Christians will leave this earth to go to heaven. Uh, the idea is that uh, we will be here one day, then boom, we are gone and we are raptured and we leave those who don't know Jesus here on earth. The word uh, rapture doesn't appear in scripture, that exact word, but the idea of it certainly does. Um, the, the best example is um, Rev, the book of Revelations talks about things like that. And then 1 Thessalonians, it's written by Paul. Here's what he says. Um, this is a good example of the rapture. It'll actually be on the screen as well. Uh, chapter 4, verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a way that they would describe um, people that have passed away. Um, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So for 18 centuries, uh, the rapture 
was always understood as the second coming of Jesus, that Jesus said he's going to come back one day. Uh, Jesus will return. He'll call his people to be with him forever. He will judge the living and the dead. The idea is that Jesus will return, and when he returns, everything happens at the exact same time. That is what we would call post-tribulation, that it's a one-time event, that rapture and, and judgment all this stuff happens at one time, okay? Um, but in the last century, a new idea was brought up, a new interpretation that was mainly popularized by John Nelson Darby. Darby taught that Jesus would come in two stages. So first, there would be the secret rapture. That's like we're here, all of a sudden, boom, whoever followed Jesus is gone. And then for seven years, there'll be tribulation, and, and we're not sure, and the people that are here will have to fend for themselves. Then eventually, after those seven years, Jesus will come back. That is the idea of pre-tribulation rapture, okay? Those are the differences between those. So which one do I believe in? I got no idea, man. <laughs> I have no clue. I think you wanted me to know these answers a little more. That's why I asked them. Here, but here's what I will say. Here's why I don't know. I believe that Revelations and 1 Thessalonians, what we just read, um, talking about the end times, th- those beliefs, um, they are all talking about um, the end times with a political angle with Rome at the time. So Paul and John who wrote Revelation and some of the prophecies that are used are using metaphors that I don't know, I, don't, I, I know for sure a lot of them are not meant to be taken literally, and I don't know how many are meant to be taken literally. So they use a lot of metaphors, things like that. Thinking about Rome and the politics at the time, they wrote these things. So because of that, I don't know what's supposed to be taken literally or not, and it's hard to do that. Here's my example for 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 15. He uses so many different metaphors, um, and then he talks about the trumpet, he talks about the loud command, he talks about the voice of an archangel, he talks about the dead rising all in chapter 4, but he does the same thing in chapter 5. Here's some things that he talks about in chapter 5. He says that the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night, it will be like a woman giving birth, so don't get drunk and put on your armor. Those are a lot of metaphors to put in one theology that we got to think, okay, so he's going to come like a thief in the night, but it's going to be like a woman giving labor, so we can't drink anything and put on our armor because we got to be ready to go. That's a lot of metaphors that we know are not meant to be taken literally, and I believe in chapter 4 he's doing the same thing. Um, all these metaphors, I believe we can explain, and I'll explain them to you. Um, the, the archangel and the trumpets. Uh, Paul is talking here about Jesus coming down from heaven the same way that Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. He's given that imagery of Moses coming down from the Ten Commandments. That's how Jesus will come down. He combines that with the image of Daniel in, in uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. The Son of Man will be caught up in the clouds, the prophecy that Daniel talks about. He combines that imagery, so that, that imagery of the Son of Man meeting them in the clouds. And then he takes all of that and he combines it with an imagery for that time period. Um, in that time period, the emperor or the ruler of whatever kingdom... Um, if there was a battle going on, they would leave the kingdom, they would go out and fight the battle, and then when they returned to home after defending their empire, the citizens were so thankful they would go out and they would walk him back in. They, when he got there, they would celebrate and they would bring him back in. He combines those three images in just these two verses. So in 1 Thessalonians, he combines the Moses imagery, the Daniel imagery, and the imperial imagery to describe Jesus coming back. I don't believe that Paul is saying that is exactly what's going to happen. Instead, I believe what he's saying is when Jesus comes back, it will be like Moses coming down from the mountain. It will be like us being restored and justified and vindicated after our suffering here in life. And it will be like an emperor or a ruler coming back to take rule over his kingdom again. That's what it's going to be like. I don't think he's saying literally. He's saying like. 
second coming to me proves that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I think that's what Paul wants us to understand. I think that's what the book of Revelation wants us to understand. Like we hear the number 666, that's referring to Caesar. Again, a Roman political angle. Could it be literal? Maybe. Or it could just be them talking about what's happening then. I think what we truly need to understand is that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So when Jesus comes back, however he does, he will bring perfect justice, perfect love, perfect peace. And since we already know him, it is our responsibility to live out the task and to live a way that we are preparing for the king to return. So when he comes back, we walk him back into his kingdom. I think that's what Paul is trying to tell us. So post or pre-tribulation, I don't know. What I do know is that we should live a way that we are ready for him to return. We should live a way that is honoring him. So when he says we need to feed the poor, feed the poor. When it says that we need to take care of the widows, we take care of the widows. When it says that we need to live a certain way, we take that seriously because we believe he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Again, we need to look at every question with this idea. The God of the universe created everything, including the way to have a relationship with him through Jesus. So those of us who follow Jesus, we need to live in a way that honors him because we know that one day we will be able to spend eternity with him. So creation or revolution, global or local flood, pre or post tribulation, Jurassic Park or Jurassic World, whatever questions you have, they're good questions. We can talk about it. We can debate it. We can disagree on it if you want to. We can have these discussions and we should have these discussions. We should talk about these things, but it does not change what our ultimate goal is. Our ultimate goal is to live a life worthy of him. That's our ultimate goal. So however the world is built, however it's going to end, doesn't change our goal. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you that you are a God that invites our questions, that invites um, our, us discovering more about you, that invites us to, to have a relationship with you. Dear God, no matter what, where we fall in certain topics or certain questions, I just pray that you continue to speak to us and remind us of what is most important our relationship with you, living a life that honors you, living a life that loves other people so that they get to meet you and know you, living a life that makes a difference in our community, in our state, and in our world. So dear God, as, as we continue to wrestle with these questions, we continue to talk about these questions throughout the series. Help us to remember what our ultimate goal is, it's to follow you. In your son's name, amen. And let's sing this closing song together.